Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. <laughs> Tommy Vitor. <laughs> Later in the pod, you'll hear my conversation with Obama pollster Cornell Belcher about what, if anything, the 2020 polls can tell us about the state of the race. Um, one thing Cornell pointed out, I want to see if you guys can figure this out. Cornell said, guess who was leading the Democratic field at this stage late April of 2004, which is how he, sa- he says that this race may- reminds him most of the 2004 primary. I had already guessed Dick Gephardt, but that was apparently wrong. No. 2004. I can give a big hint. It's not Wesley Clark. It's a fan favorite of yours, love it. John Edwards. No. <laughs> a fan favorite of mine? In, a, in the most sarcastic way Chris possible. Evans? Howard Dean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Not Joe Lieberman. Yes, oh. Joe Oh, my Lieberman! God. Of, right, course, of course, right. He, he was. was. <laughs> he was the he was the Democratic vice uh, president four years earlier. He had yet to decide uh, that he didn't want people between fifty and sixty five to have health care. It was uh, a <laughs> lot. Yeah. He hadn't endorsed, yet endorsed George. Did wait? He had endorsed, uh, McCain. Uh, John McCain. Wow. He, he was a three way tie for third in New Hampshire. Hadassah and I are so blessed. <laughs> That's what he'd say all the time. <laughs> um, we relish Hadassah. That was one of those <laughs> the best signs. That's right. That cycle. Yeah. Wow, guys. Some people are like, 2004, what? What are they talking about? Um, <laughs> okay, in addition to that, uh, the 2020 candidates continue to come visit us here at Crooked Headquarters. Tommy talked with Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton on Friday. You can listen to that episode now. Damn right I did. Dan Pfeiffer is here. He's in the other room just preparing for his interview with Congressman Tim Ryan He's really buckling of Ohio. Down. What's that? He's really buckling down. I He's, saw him in there. Dan is buckling down right now. Uh, Tim Ryan's coming in here later today. That will be released on Tuesday, Dan's conversation with Tim Ryan. And then I will be talking with former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper uh, on Tuesday for an episode that you'll be able to check out on Friday. So we're trying to get all the candidates in here before the first debate. Who knows if it'll happen? <laughs> Love it wore his Merlot pants for Tim Ryan. For Tim Ryan? I, I think so. I think they're more of a burgundy. That's a first. Well, more you want French, that's fine. And Tommy's got his Stitch Fix, Stitch Fix red hoodie on. Yeah, <laughs> we know, which we know. Most cause... of what I'm wearing is free. <laughs> Next topic, John. Okay. We're gonna get, now we get to the news, and the news is very serious. Um, a gunman with an AR-15 attacked a synagogue in Southern California this weekend, leaving at least one dead and several others wounded, including a rabbi and a young girl. The attack in Poway, California, which happened on the last day of Passover, came half a year after the shootings at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Police arrested a 19-year-old suspect, who may have also been involved in a recent attempt to burn down a mosque. 
A user of the far-right message board 8chan, with the same name as the suspect, posted a manifesto to that site before the attack took place that accuses Jews of trying to destroy the white race through immigration, a post that's strikingly similar to the one posted by the alleged gunman behind the attacks that took place on mosques in New Zealand earlier this year. There was also disturbing news from Northern California this weekend. Police in Sunnyvale, which is near San Francisco, said on Friday that they believe a driver who ran his car into a crowd of people last week did so because he was deliberately targeting Muslims. So... Shortly after the shooting, uh, a commentator on Fox News referred to the gunman as a lone wolf. And you heard this uh, in a couple different places. This is a lone wolf attack. Tommy, was this a lone wolf? Is this what we would describe as a lone wolf? No, I don't think so. Because you see packs of these individuals coordinating and talking about their plans on, on social media sites like Gab and 8chan and 4chan in certain areas. And so, no, I mean, I think that these are people who are, are feeding off the last attacker, who are building a community based around hate and hate speech and, and frankly, trying to incentivize people to violence. So, yeah. I mean, I, like I view this as as dangerous uh, to the United States, to citizens here as ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and that we should resource it appropriately. Because the, the like nightmare scenario has always been in counterterrorism that there's some individual in the U.S. that is inspired by or adheres to Al-Qaeda or ISIS or has like a sleeper cell. The sleeper cell is here now. And it's like angry white 19-year-old kids who are living on the worst places in the internet and getting radicalized. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't help but wonder, like, how would we be talking about this and responding to this if the New Zealand shooter, if the Poway shooter, if uh, all of these people had been Muslim? Yeah, well, I mean, even, you know, what gets described as, as terrorism uh, depends on the religion of the person perpetrating it. Um, we have lifted up extremism that flows from Al-Qaeda that flows from you know, Islamic extremism and held that up as somehow separate and special compared to anti-Semitic violence, white supremacist violence. And what we're learning is that that's a mistake. This is just going to keep happening, right? We, we, we <laughs> there was a conversation about this on one of the cable networks, and it was someone saying, I can't believe I'm here again six months after what happened in Pittsburgh. Why are you surprised? Right, we've done nothing. We've done nothing to address the underlying cultural forces, radicalizing groups of angry, lonely white men. Uh, we have done nothing to address the policies that allow these people to arm themselves. Uh, we have done nothing to, <laughs> there's been no attempt on the part of those on the right to police their own rhetoric and their own language to look at the, um, the extreme rhetoric that is at least helping to gal galvanize these communities. You know, the Lone Wolf organized its, um, we're not yet totally comfortable with how to describe what, what this is, which is what, you know, stoca stochastic violence, right? Stochastic terrorism where, no, you can't point to any one sentence offered on Fox News. You can't point to any one uh, bit of extremism promulgated by Donald Trump as the cause, the proximate cause of something like this. But all of it feeds into a culture of hate that at the very bottom of the Internet is helping to foment what we see and and. These kinds, of mo these kinds of events are going to pop up again and again and again, and we shouldn't be surprised. This is not going to be the last time someone shoots up a synagogue. It's going to happen again, and uh, we should just face that and be honest about it because I don't think we usually are. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Levitt, and this is the definition of terrorism. It's violence or murder to make a political point. And right. the point that this guy is trying to make is very similar to what the New Zealand shooter is trying to make, which is something you see on 8chan, 4chan, and Gab all the time, which is that... Uh, that minority groups or Jews are trying to replace white people uh, and that we need to separate, separate out the races and 
this is their way of doing it. I mean, I went on fucking 8chan last night just to see what was going on there. It is a horror show worse than you could ever imagine. It is people joking that this guy didn't get a high enough score. They've like gamified mass murder. They wanted to kill more people. It is like straight up Nazi propaganda. And it, it will live there to incite other people today, tomorrow, the next day. And because of this shooting, because of conversations like the one we're having, people are going to learn about it for the first time and end up going there more. I mean, this is a problem that's growing. It's metastasizing. It is not getting better. It's getting worse. We sure as fuck aren't doing anything about you know, AR-15s being in every community on the planet. We're barely even talking about gun control, despite the Las Vegas attack being one of the most horrific things to ever happen to our nation. So, yeah, no one should be surprised. And it's not just bubbling up um, from 8chan and Gab and sites like that. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned Fox News. You can't point to a specific uh, sentence or whatever. You, you actually can. Tucker Carlson, on in October of 2018 literally attacked liberal pundits for encouraging what he called, quote, the genocide of white male Christians. I mean, this is their most popular host, um, has the primetime spot on Fox News, millions of people seeing that. And that's the most extreme example from Tucker. But you're right that some of the other uh, hosts, they, they talk about immigration is changing the character of this country forever. Democrats are trying to bring immigrants in so they can get votes. All of this well, is of a Steve people. King, congressman from Iowa, doesn't even try to hide it. I mean, he talks right. about but this, this is, in that exact language, too. Right. I mean, this is the point, right? When, when Tucker Carlson says that, he's not, he never says in that. He would, and he wouldn't say, and I don't think he would want to say, go out and kill people, right? right? But what he doesn't appreciate, what he doesn't seem to care, is that when he says something like that, even though it is a step removed from any kind of call for violence, it feeds into a radicalizing culture that leads some random person to take it as inspiration or to contribute to the inspiration that he feels, and it's always he. So, you know... And this is also at the highest levels of the White House, right? This is, you know, uh, Donald Trump during the campaign retweeted an account that's a, you know, white genocide account. You've got Stephen Miller has talked about these views around immigration, right? That, uh, I mean, it's... Yeah. Look, there was a think tank is the Network Contagion Research Institute. I'd never heard of it until I read this article this morning. They they analyzed, like, uh, 100 million comments on on Gab and 4chan, they found that anti-Semitic slurs and content uh, on those platforms doubled after the election of Donald Trump. Right. The, it, there's data that shows that between July 2016 and January 2018, uh, the politically incorrect message board on Gab or on 4chan went up drastically. I mean, they, it's, it's normalized people's feeling that they can say these things without repercussions. So... A lot of conservatives and some other media personalities have responded by saying that anti-Semitism is a problem on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, some Republicans pointed back to Ilhan Omar's comments. New York Times columnist Barry Weiss tweeted, The past few days provide a useful case study. Thursday, an anti-Zionist cartoon is published in the New York Times. Saturday, a white nationalist guns down Jews in a synagogue. Sunday, Zarif uh, appears on Fox, the uh, foreign minister for Iran. Yeah. Um, the three strands of modern anti-Semitism, far left, far right, and Islamist. Guys, I'm having trouble seeing an equivalence between what Ilhan Omar said about APAC and the idea on the right wing that Jews are part of a white genocide conspiracy. Can you help me out here? <laughs> you don't even have to go there. I mean, you don't even have to go that. Like, I've been lectured by conservatives for quite some time for not conflating violent actions with words, right? That that actually, that that's something that chills free speech and that's politically correct. But even putting that aside, 
Anti-Semitism is one of the most potent, dangerous forces in human history, and they are playing with it like it's a partisan cudgel, and it is very frustrating. Yeah. The, this, is, this is something that is alive now. It has been around forever. It has caused untold harm and misery over the course of human history. It is, it is so dangerous. They are playing with such an incredibly powerful force, and to use it and to cast it into our partisan frame to make it easier to stomach, to make it easier to process, is uh, reprehensible. We have a problem. The problem is white nationalists uh, and anti-Semites killing Jews. That's the problem we're talking about. Well, and it's also, I mean, I saw someone in, in The Intercept write this piece, you know, we have the same enemies, right? That, that um, it's not just anti-Semitism that is a result of white nationalism. It is um, anti-Islam, right? Like the, mm -hmm. it is... There is a belief, there is an ideology that the white race is superior. It's Nazism. It's Nazism, right? And that that in, that yeah. includes anti-Semitism, but goes much broader than that. And right? it, and it also it's worth noting too that in the past few years, like there has been a rise in hate, hate crimes. And who have those hate crimes targeted? They've targeted Jews and they've targeted Muslims. Like right. those are the mm -hmm. two religious groups being targeted right now uh, by violence. In the and Af and African Americans. Remember, there was a black church uh, burned <clears throat> in Louisiana just a few a few weeks ago. So that is yeah. the targets are. Are black Americans, Latino Americans, immigrants, Jews, and Muslims. You know, Those a, are the targets of white nationalism. I just anti-Semitism is a centuries-old evil, as Lovett said. Uh, it, I don't think it's rooted in a party or an ideology. Uh, you know, Louis Farrakhan says vile anti-Semitic things. We should condemn those things. The Labour Party in the United Kingdom has had real problems with members saying things that are blatantly and vilely anti-Semitic. I do think we just need to be smart enough to separate out. Uh, what we've seen lately, which is far-right white nationalists whose views are so sick and depraved that it leads them to violence. And you're right. I mean, the fact that, you know, in an effort to defend Donald Trump or distract from the fact that, you know, these are right-wing radical white men, that we throw Elon Omar's name into the mix yeah. months after, the, you know, the, this discussion, it is so cynical. And Every time you think that something is so serious that we might look inward and deal with the problem, uh, our, our friends on Fox News and on the right fail to do so. And it, it leads to a sense of just despair that we'll never deal with these problems. Here, here's Elon Omar on the shooting. My heart is breaking after today's deadly shooting. On the last day of Passover and six months to the day after the Tree of Life shooting, we as a nation must confront the terrifying rise of religious hate and violence. Love Trump's hate. How much are these media outlets and platforms responsible and what can be done about them? I mean... You know, uh, there's. I saw some calls for someone's got to shut down a chan. I don't know how you do that. Um, clearly, Fox is a problem that we haven't been able to solve. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the I'm, I'm not sure how you would do that. You know, I mean, a whole bunch of of companies that host websites have kicked the things like a chan or the Daily Stormer off. Yeah, and then there's just sort of a few that linger, like legacy, like sites that are just willing to allow anything to happen. And I don't know how to increase the political pressure on them to get rid of those people. I mean, certainly, I think it's better than having them all over Facebook or all over Twitter where there's millions and millions of people. But again, every time we have this conversation, someone learns what 8chan is for the first time. And, and maybe you don't need uh, help learning what it is if you're in some of the more dark corners of 4chan or you know, you're watching Fox News at night, which leads you down this path into the really radicalizing, dangerous shit. Yeah, and part of it, I think, is defining, like what we were just talking about, defining exactly what this kind of hate and uh, hateful ideology is. I mean, here's one example. Uh, last week, apparently, there was a report that when an employee at Twitter recently asked at an all-hands meeting why they couldn't ban content from white supremacists like they do with content linked to terrorist groups like ISIS, 
Um, that person was told that coming up with an algorithmic solution would be more complicated because it could also affect content created by Republican politicians. Yeah, and what that tells me <laughs> is that all the bad faith attacks on Facebook and Twitter and other tech platforms from Donald Trump Jr. and Donald Trump about shadow banning, all this made-up bullshit they do, they work. They work. And, and these guys end up fearing being called partisan more than being accused of allowing Nazis to fester on their platform. That is a, a really fucked up way to think about the problem. Yeah, and it's the inability to say that certain types of speech are hateful and can incite violence and to say that, yes, sometimes they might come from uh, Republican politicians because they're so afraid because then that makes it partisan. And God forbid you are ever seen or accused of being partisan. That is the that is the worst sin possible, yeah. Yeah. that you did something that you're accused of being partisan, even when the truth is right there. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Trump's response to all of this, which unfolded over a few days, culminating in a uh, batshit crazy speech in Wisconsin on Saturday night. So he did offer condolences for the victims and condemned anti-Semitism. That's good. But on Friday, the president responded to Joe Biden's announcement video by claiming that he gave the perfect response uh, to the white supremacist neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville. And that when he said there was very fine people on both sides, he was referring to those who just didn't want to see Robert E. Lee's statue come down. Uh, guys, what's the problem with this explanation? Because it's not just from Donald Trump. I've seen a ton of conservative commentators say they all got Charlottesville wrong. <clears throat> yeah, he condemned yeah. anti-Semitism, and he was just talking about the statue people. It's just a lie. Yeah. <laughs> the Unite the Right rally was explicitly organized, and people went there to to spread racist, white supremacist views. That was the point of the rally. And you didn't need to see what happened on Saturday to know that. You could have watched those motherfuckers marching with tiki torches on Friday night and terrorizing black students at UVA. Like it, I, This is one of those conversations where we're just being asked to not believe our lying eyes, and it is so infuriating that we even have to talk about it. I it's uh, it, Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's so many ways. <laughs> When Donald Trump wants to denounce something, he never struggles. No. You know, when he has no trouble uh, denouncing Democrats or he has no trouble uh, denouncing um, cable any, ratings, cable ratings, <laughs> any any celebrity that criticizes him. It seems to me he only uh, has trouble finding the words when it has to do with Vladimir Putin or white nationalists. That's when he seems to be able to. That's the only time the corners get sanded down. Uh, he, it's 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 just it's just nonsense. Also, fuck Robert E. Lee. He was not a great general. He was a traitor. Yeah, who led a war against his own country. He's a vile racist, an unrepentant, disgusting human being. Like, get out of here with this. I know. There, yeah, there's that. <laughs> get my, out my, of, get, excuse me, Donald Trump. Get out of here. With get this. out of here with this. It just what got me so mad about it is that even before we get to Robert E. Lee, the the very premise is wrong. That they uh, there were there weren't people that that wasn't the purpose of the rally. Um, Finally, Tommy, you had mentioned uh, guns earlier when we first started talking about this. Uh, just hours after that gunman shot up the synagogue with an AR-15, Trump said in his Wisconsin speech that Democrats are trying to take your guns away. Um, Trump was fresh off appearing at the NRA's convention in Indianapolis, which also ended in a bonkers leadership crisis, mm -hmm. all while its tax-exempt status is under investigation by New York's attorney general. So that's some good news. Um, <laughs> Guys, how hard should Democratic candidates take on gun control in the NRA in 2020? Should this be a bigger issue than it has been in the primary so far? It's a great question. Politically, it's hard. I don't know. I mean, I, I liked what Kamala Harris had to say, I believe, over the weekend about some executive action she would take. Yeah, it does. Uh, we need to focus on things we can do by executive action to deal with any problem, since the Republican Senate is likely to be there. Yeah, yeah we, I mean, should, we should talk about... So, 
uh, Harris made news uh, during her CNN mega town hall. It was last week. All these things sort of blend together. Yeah. Um, that sh- that if no action by Congress was taken within the first hundred days of her presidency, she would move on a series of executive actions. Um, Harris has made a pledge that includes mandating background checks, revoking licenses from dealers and manufacturers who break the law, and closing a legal loophole to keep those convicted of domestic violence from purchasing guns, among other things. Um, you know, we know this is difficult because we tried this with Obama. We kept pushing and pushing to see how much he could do via executive action on mm-hmm. guns versus getting something passed. And there is quite a bit you can do, but still, the big, big stuff still has to happen in Congress. Yeah, I mean, I think they should be talking about what they do, talking about what they do with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House. You know, we're still trying to get through modest proposals that have massive bipartisan support, things like background checks and other steps like that. Uh, We've had the first hearings in a decade on gun control in the House because we finally have the branch of government back. So I think that should continue. I think we have to just keep pressing the issue. I also, you know, I do think when it comes to gun control, as always, like we conflate the three kinds of violence. We conflate gun deaths by suicide, gun deaths by kind of quotidian murder and then mass shootings. They each require a different response. And then on top of that, I also think we are in a real cultural rut in how we talk about mass shootings. You know, this is a small thing, but every time there's a mass shooting now, someone goes on television and says the people of this community are strong and they'll get through this. Uh, It is a, um, I understand why they say it. I understand why they feel the need to say it. No one's ever gone on television and said, this community is weak and it will succumb to this mass shooting. Um, But the reason they feel the need to say it is it ascribes agency to uh, all of us in the fight against what happens after a mass shooting, but it's actually a false sense of agency. It's trying to make people feel like they're empowered when actually they're just sort of the grim victims of a lottery. And uh, I think all the kind of hopeful notes uh, that come at the end of coverage is harmful and wrong. I agree with that. I, I also, you know, there's a lot of journalists, you see a lot of reporters on TV in particular who, you know, are, are heartbroken and frustrated and screaming about how they don't want to have to report on the same story again. I feel like that rage and frustration is rarely translated into a political setting where you could clearly say that one party has done everything they can to side with the NRA and prevent gun control from happening and one has not. Like Eric Swalwell is the only one talking about banning and buying back military-style assault weapons like the AR-15. It's the most obvious thing we can do. I know the politics are hard, but uh, like... I would love for the outrage to extend into the political setting because one party is the problem. Yeah. And I will say that there is hopeful news um, once you get past sort of national action via Congress and the president, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I've, you've seen this almost at every single candidate's events. Uh, there are moms demand action uh, activists there. Um, the Parkland students have been active. And what they're trying to do is they say, okay, well, on the national scene, it's very tough to get things moving with this Congress and this president. We're going to, uh, we're going to take on the states. Yeah. And yeah. not only have they stopped a lot of really bad laws from passing that would make it easier to have a gun, but they have also passed real gun safety reform um, in state legislatures all across the country. And so that is, you know, if you're if you're thinking about how to do something that's not just thoughts and prayers or our community is going to get through this, you know, there is real grassroots action happening right now all across this country at a at a lower level than uh, than Congress that should give us hope for the future. Yeah. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. 
It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on Crunch Island. It's Jean foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away. Throw our last crunch berry. No. No one steals my crunch berries. I think you mean my crunch berries. Choose your own crunch venture with Captain Crunch. All right. Let's turn to the Trump investigations. Uh, the Washington Post and ABC have done the first big post Mueller report poll. Uh, I'll read some questions and results, and then I'll go to you guys for reaction. Did the Mueller report clear Trump? 31% yes, 53% no. Did Trump tell the truth? 33% said yes, 58% said no. Did Trump obstruct justice? 47% said yes, 41% said no. Now, should the House begin impeachment proceedings? 37% yes, 56% no. And that's 62% of Democrats are in favor of uh, impeachment proceedings, but 60% of independents are opposed, and of course 90% of Republicans are opposed. Guys, anything in here surprising to you, or what's your take from these numbers? It's not particularly surprising. I actually think that 47% of people believing he obstructed justice is pretty good. Uh, yes. That in was a, surprising. That was in the a, one that was surprising. In a, in a, in a news cycle that basically went... Uh, Democrats saying he did, but we're going to take it slow. And uh, Republicans being like he's exonerated and the media being teaching the controversy. It doesn't surprise me. But that, that, that feels like some truth got through. I'll tell you, the the 37 percent who want impeachment hearing proceedings to begin versus the 47 percent who believe that Trump broke the law and obstructed justice. That's the pundit gap right there. That's yeah. what I'm calling <laughs> right. That is a that's whole right. bunch of voters I, who are like, he broke the law, but uh, I'm hearing on TV that it's a little worrisome that Democrats might overreach by moving towards impeachment. I will say also there's a little bit of um, a Clinton gap in there, too, because uh, – there might be some people out there who vaguely remember that Democrats were against removing a Democratic president who obviously obstructed justice. So there's a little bit of like a kind of lawless overhang from like the last 30 years, a little bit of a hangover from presidents being above the law, like kind of Maybe. can't remove a president for breaking the law. I think I, I, I would like to see data on that only because I think we can barely remember what happened last week. Oh, no, we're goldfish. <laughs> I don't I don't think it's like a one to one connection of people making it. But there is a kind of the, the that. We've we've elevated holding presidents accountable to such a high bar, which yeah. I think is inappropriate, and I think both parties have contributed to that over a very long time. This is really bad news for Trump. 
is terrible. (laughs) What are we talking about? This is insanely bad news for Trump. And I think that what Democrats need to do now is use hearings to bring the Mueller report to life on TV because it was 448 pages. Nobody read the whole thing. There's all sorts of explosive stuff in there. So I want days and days and days of testimony from key officials stretched out over a year that explode this thing on television and create moments that break through. And again, I've been skeptical about impeachment because I don't fucking want a moral victory and I'm a crass political hack. And to me, that says uh, we need to do some more work here to sell people on how bad of a person he is. And also, I really, really want to know if impeachment is more likely to motivate our base or his base. I think in some ways that is the key question to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if that it's possible for his base to be any more motivated. I mean, I, this is what I well, thought. We, absolutely it is. Kavanaugh. But that's what I'm Before saying. after Kavanaugh. But what I was saying is I think during the 2018 election, we learned that no matter what it is, there will be something, whether it's impeachment, which starts a year out of the election, more than a year out of the election, whether it's a Kavanaugh fight, whether it was the caravan. Remember, it started with, Ka- it started with Kavanaugh, then Kavanaugh faded out, and then it was the caravan, right? Like, they will, they have an entire propaganda empire that will find something to motivate their base. Sure. Count on it. Yeah, Just the, count um, on it. The, uh, the, the, People talked about it, but I don't think it's fully been like absorbed into our thinking. Um, it is the propaganda machine. Uh, I would say the biggest surprise of the twenty eighteen election is just how hard the Republicans turned out. All this notion that like there's that 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 Trump is demoralizing to some segment of this base. All this the, the all the conversation about how uh, energetic and and you know come alive the liberal base is. All that is that is actually true, but. Republicans came out. They came out in massive numbers. They surprised people like Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who hit his targets on how many people turned out. And all of a sudden, there were more Republicans than anyone expected in Texas. Same thing happened there. Happened in the House races. It happened in the Senate races. It happened everywhere. They all hit their targets. They hit their targets. So it's the Republican turnout machine is vast, quiet, and incredibly impressive. Um, And so it's just, I don't think that's been fully kind of part of the conversation. And there's a reason it's impressive. It's because Donald Trump has turned the party into a party that runs on grievance politics and only grievance politics. There's always a reason to feel fucking aggrieved, according to Donald Trump and Fox News, whatever it may be. It's it's always going to be easier to motivate a homogenous base than for Democrats, where we're a coalition of African-Americans and liberals and higher educated and Latino voters. We're arguing over everything all the time. There's not going to be one thing that gets us. That's exactly right. And also, these are older voters. They are are registered. They are not moving. They know where their polling place is. They vote every time. I will say one more thing about... So this was the Washington Post-ABC poll. The New York Times did a story where it talked about uh, Democratic politicians holding town halls with mm-hmm. voters, and, and they said there's not a big push to impeachment. Including many friends of the pod, like Katie Porter? Yep, exactly. Um, <laughs> but what drove, what, what drove me nuts about this, the story was well written, what drove me nuts about some of these voters is not one of them raised their hand and said, hey, can you focus on health care instead of impeachment because I don't think impeachment's important, right? Yeah. They all said... Please focus on healthcare and other issues because I hear that if we focus on impeachment, um, we're, we're going to lose and it's going to excite Trump's baseball. Everyone, all, all these voters are acting like fucking punters. They're all auditioning for the Meet the Press panel this Sunday. It's, uh, it's all of our fault. It's all of our collective fault. It's the it's impeachment or a Boros. But it's it's all it's all what you think might happen. It's the same thing we deal with in the primary when people say, "I love Elizabeth Warren, but I don't know that she can win because the pundits tell me she can't win." And there and because the I pundits wa- are saying she can't. 
can't win, she can't win because the conversation is about how she can't win. I want impeachment, but the pundits tell me that impeachment is not going to be good. Look, I, and I go back to my thing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm just as much of a crass political hack as you, Tommy. Um, but I, I think <laughs> I think that your, what you just said, which was bringing the Mueller report to life on television um, for people instead of reading a dense 300-page, 400-page report is a much better political move for the Democrats, mm-hmm. even if they don't come out of that victorious because no one expects Donald Trump to be removed by the Senate. But I will say the idea of sort of dragging Trump administration officials to Congress to testify, um, that's not easy either. Right now, this week, we're dealing with Mm -hmm. um, William Barr, Attorney General William Barr, is now threatening to cancel his testimony before Congress this week because he's upset with a format that would allow for extended questioning. (laughs) That's why Barr is pissed. Of course. So the question is, and I saw, you know, Ted Lieu did an interview with Greg Sargent about this, is... Is the move now to possibly threaten impeachment proceedings if the White House continues to stonewall and not provide any officials to give any testimony? Like, what if we can't have these hearings because the White House refuses to allow anyone to testify? Well, one of the one of the articles of impeachment against Nixon was about his was about the administration's efforts to thwart Congress's investigation. Right. So I do think that's it's congressional some, obstruction. Right. So I do think that's a place to go. I, I don't know how to game out where impeachment falls as a threat to them. I, I don't know. I do I do like the stories suggesting Democrats are beginning to consider more drastic measures to enforce their subpoenas, whether it's through fines or even potentially uh, threatening uh, contempt and jail time. I, I think that that is... Uh, um, important, you know, one, one thing we've talked about a million times is how much we rely on norms of behavior, especially, and that is especially true in the dynamic between the White House and Congress. But it's very clear that this administration is not going to respect those at all. They're not turning over the tax documents. You know, Donald Trump is suing to prevent subpoenas to his accountant. We have a lot of mm-hmm. evidence that they are going to fundamentally disregard the kind of fair play between the two branches, and that may force them to go further in one direction or another. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the tax issue is is a very specific one for Trump, and I think he is playing to delay it for as long as humanly possible past the mid past the reelection, basically. Yeah. On, on, so, but writ large, I want to see Democrats just hit the gas everywhere. Like, no more waiting to subpoena people. Just subpoena them. No one knows the difference. Fire Hurry that up. Get everyone you want before you start the process now, because a lot of this will end up in courts. It's dragged out. There's negotiations. Enough. It's and, if they, enough. If they, yeah. and if they reject a subpoena, hold them in contempt. Yes. And, and to take it as far as you can. Let's go. Yeah, because it's it's also worth stepping back to, to sort of first principles. Why do we want the tax returns? So that they can form the American people in their decision making on re-election. If there is Donald Trump will face one more election in his life until he runs for mayor of New York and wins that. But the uh, uh, <laughs> no, he will. Oh. He won't. He won't. He can't. Probably can't. No. But but um, his returns are only of importance to the American people for another year and a half. That's it. This is the time. If we get him now, or it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's talk about 2020. We don't love covering primary horse race polls here, especially this early. But I want to quickly talk about the post ABC poll because. They questioned respondents in an interesting way and got a different kind of result. I, I, it's fascinating, It's John. fascinating. It's fascinating. Instead of reading <laughs> a list of candidate names, the Post asked people to name the candidate they like off the top of their head. It's supposed to read them the list. So um, with people who were leaning towards a candidate included, so they asked people, who would you vote for today? And then also, who are you leaning towards? So uh, that combined, you have Biden leads with 17%, Sanders gets 11%, Buttigieg gets 5%, and Kamala, Warren, and Beto all get 4%. But the big winner 
is no opinion with 35 percent uh what does that tell us about the state of the race and what does it tell us about polls i i really appreciate this for for a few reasons one is i like that basically in a lot of polls you see biden somewhere say around 25 percent and 30 yeah it's so 30, 30. let's say let's say it's let's say it's 25 percent uh and he got, what, 17 in this one? Mm-hmm. That means that there is about 8% of people who support Joe Biden, however, cannot remember his name when asked. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is very interesting. That, like, who am I for? I'm for Joe Biden. But you got to remind me that he exists. <laughs> and then I love him. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, did you, what did you think, Tommy? Yeah. I mean, big picture take home is how early it is. Um, there were some interesting things within the numbers Bernie's support was pretty even among whites, non-whites, college grads, those without college degrees. I think that sort of cuts against conventional wisdom about who's supporting Bernie Sanders. So, you know, notable, interesting. Um, Ben Smith, uh, who is the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, wrote an interesting piece about how it used to be that candidates got little, like, earned media boomlets from the press, and then the press looked at them closely and then criticized them and discarded them. Reminded me of Howard Dean and some of the frontrunners of the past. Uh, his his argument is that today is different because of social media and someone like Bernie or Biden could use social channels to prop themselves up throughout the primary. It'd be interesting to see if that plays out. Certainly, you look at Mayor Pete and the way he's used the media and his own channels to really boost himself. Like that would tell me, yes, although, you know, you look at Beto O'Rourke, who had huge, uh, you know, social media presence, Facebook presence that propelled him in the Senate race. He is not you know, done this successfully last few months. So, and yet, a lot to learn. Despite the fact that, at least in, in Buttigieg and Beto's case, the Buttigieg boom has been like all over media for the yeah. last couple of weeks and ton, and Beto has been almost absent from national media, and they're separated by a point in the poll. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and Elizabeth Warren and all of like it's, it's, it, what stands out to me in that poll is, um, it, 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 a that it's interesting that Bernie and Biden are both a little lower when you ask people to name them off the top of your mm-hmm. head, but also that for all that we've talked about and thought about, uh, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Beto O'Rourke, they are all sitting at four and five percent right now, and thirty-five percent of people don't have an opinion, which means this fucking race is as wide open as ever, and it is early, and also as uh, Cornell said to me when we just had our chat. Um, these these horse race polls this early are complete bullshit. Yeah, I was. <laughs> just throw this just you just you might as well burn thirty grand. <laughs> I think like you can. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, democracy dies in the darkness. I think that you could um, have shame on you, Tommy. The um, uh, I think there's like an optimistic read, and then there's a pessimistic read. I think the optimistic read is it's a wide open field. There's a lot of really really great candidates, and um, it could really be anyone, and any one of these people could walk away with it. We have debates to come. There's a lot of lot to happen. Um, I think there is a there is a pessimistic read that's worth airing, which is, I think, part of what we're seeing. I think part of the reason, first of all, there's no one clear person that everyone recognizes is like the person they want, right? They're just absent, and I think that could be because we haven't found them yet from this pool of really good options. It also could be that, in part, because Democrats are so shaken by 2016, and but but also in part because there's a gut sense that none of them are kind of capturing what they were hoping for in a candidate, that everybody is still kind of feeling around because they they look at each one of these people and they like them. They like the, Maybe they like how policy-focused they are. Maybe they like the voice they bring. Maybe they like the critique they bring. Maybe they like the experience they bring. But for whatever reason, there's a gut sense that none of these people are capturing what 
what they were looking for in the person that was going to stand across from Donald Trump because they recognize how important it is. I don't know, but I think it's well, worth certainly there's being anecdotal evidence uh, among uh, recent presidential candidates who threw them their hats in the ring. They're clearly not seeing what they wanted to right. see, which is why we're on number twenty. Yeah, I yeah, it, it's it's right true. And as much as people joke about all new Democrats getting in, it, the reason it's not laughable, the reason it's not seen as completely ridiculous, is because there is a sense that you know what, it really could be someone who's not in the race yet. Yeah, and I would just say that. I still think um, it's just too early. Yeah. Like, I think that the idea that people have, there's voters out there who have seen all these candidates, vetted all these candidates, and are like, no one has got what I'm looking for, is probably not true just because we haven't even had the first debate yet. Yeah, I think, I think that's once, overstating once, my critique. Yeah. I think no, it's I just it. a little bit of a nervousness. That I, think like, once, I think, and, and good, like, I, we've seen this before, good candidates become good candidates throughout the course of these primary campaigns. They reveal themselves to be good candidates. Like, you know, and, and we just had two elections, 2016 and 2008 on the Democratic side, where Hillary Clinton was the dominant frontrunner in both of those elections. Yeah. You know, it was not Hillary Clinton's position in 2008 is not like Joe Biden's position in, in 2020. No, it's much stronger. <laughs> it's, it, hers was much, much stronger. And, and it's also um, one of the reasons I'm kind of I, I want everyone to at the end of this, like come together. And I and I don't want there to be too much kind of vicious infighting, but I'm sort of glad to see there's a the first hints of some mixing it up because one of these people is going to go up against an overflowing insult toilet and uh, whoever that is, I, I, I would like to see what happens on a debate stage when people start mixing it up. I don't hate it. Um, all right, now that we've done all the horse racy poll stuff, some substance. What? <laughs> yes. I gotta go. Uh, <laughs> some new My policy- Postmates is here. <laughs> Uh, During a campaign trip through California on Monday, former congressman and Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke released his first major policy proposal, which he also says would be his first priority as president. Uh, A climate change plan that calls for a $1.5 trillion federal investment in new infrastructure technologies and helping people transition to a carbon-free economy. He says he'll pay for the plan by changes to the tax code and by ending tax breaks for fossil fuel companies. Beto's campaign says the plan would meet the Green New Deal resolution goal of net zero emissions by 2050 and be halfway there by 2030. Um, it's so far the most detailed climate plan we've seen from any of the other 2020 candidates. We know also that Jay Inslee has made it a centerpiece of his campaign as well. Um, guys, what do you think of the plan, and why do you think Beto started with this policy? Seems like he's going to roll out, what, two or three big policy ideas, or that's what they've hinted at. So I think that leading with climate shows that uh, it's your top priority. It's a thing you're going to do on day one. I think in terms of process, they did a pretty smart rollout. He's here in California. He did a, an OTR meeting with firefighters to highlight the fact that climate change is driving these horrific fires. He went to Yosemite to show you an amazing natural resource. Like, it's a, it's a good plan. It was well done. I do think we need to remember, I mean, we've talked a lot on the show about how bold and impressive and comprehensive Elizabeth Warren's policy plans are, and we're political nerds. And so, you know, of course we love that sort of stuff. But on some level, who has the best plan is irrelevant once you get into the White House. So that's why you guys are constantly asking about, you know, how are you going to get it done, eliminate the filibuster, pack courts, like questions like that. It's why I'm always asking about foreign policy because you actually have a lot of uh, freedom to just do stuff on foreign policy grounds. So anyway, long way of saying good plan. I'm glad he's starting to roll it out. Um, maybe we shouldn't get too, too seized. Well, let me stop there because I don't want to tell people not to care about policy. Well, I was going to say, I totally agree on it's important to figure out how you're going to get it done, right? Yeah. That's why we've been pushing people on this. So I was actually glad to see, one of the things I was, I, I was happy about in this plan is 
he has a whole bunch of things that he can do via executive action That's what I'm right away for. because we all know whether it's the Green New Deal or Medicare for All or any of these plans, um, it's going to take a minor miracle yep. to get some of these through, even a Congress with a Democratic Senate. <laughs> because um, as we've heard from all the candidates and certainly from Schumer and all them, they're all afraid of getting rid of the filibuster, right? <laughs> um, so it's going to be really hard to move legislation. So in this plan, you know, uh, he says rejoin Paris, which they're all saying, which is great. Um, he's going to restore, restore Obama's clean power plan. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, he has a plan for net zero emissions by 2030 on all public lands and stopping all new fossil fuel leases, which is something that's yeah. interesting. I love all the executive action stuff. Yeah, because for some of these I people... I worry about the big... And that's why I liked Kamala Harris's executive actions on gun stuff too, because too. I'm glad... I, I love to hear more people talking about their executive actions. Love it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, look, I think Elizabeth Warren has staked her claim on an argument about the economy and the scale of the challenge there. And she has put out a set of policies that meet that moment. And it is why I think she's inspired a lot of people. Um, I think Beto has been criticized by a lot of people for not being substantive, for not having an actual substantive policy argument for why he should be president. I think he's looking to answer that. I think it speaks well of him that he's starting with climate. You know, Jay Inslee has staked his claim on, uh, on climate, but I actually don't think he's maximized he doesn't. That, he hasn't put out a specific yeah, plan yet. I, I I'm sure he will if he's making his. <laughs> of course, of course, but, <laughs> but like, he hasn't yet. but I, I think he hasn't, and I honestly was not super happy. Like when you you talked to him at Pod Save America, you asked him very specific questions about climate change. I thought that he gave kind of pretty kind of, I don't know, unsatisfying answers. Ultimately, when you're, if you're if you're a long shot candidate staking your claim on climate change, I, you would expect someone to come to the table with a bolder and more kind of exciting set of ideas, a, uh, a way to captivate people and show why this is so important and why you want to make it the centerpiece of your campaign. So I think that does leave an, uh, an opening. And I think it speaks, look, part of campaigns is revealing who these people are and what they care about. He's approaching this and saying he's looked at, he's looked at the vast sweep of areas where he could make a big proposal and he chose climate because he believes that's the most important. I think there's a good argument for that. Um, I think it speaks well of him. You know, Kamala Harris, I think, has come out with proposals on, you know, kind of uh, 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 tax code pro- uh, proposals and teacher proposals that speak to, I think, a more cautious approach to policymaking, and it speaks to the more cautious approach I think she would take as president. And, uh, you know, there's good arguments in favor of that. There's good arguments against that. But that's what this campaign's about. We're going to start to learn who these people are. Yeah. One other interesting thing about this policy, um, because obviously everyone who rolls out a climate policy will be compared to the Green New Deal, right? So the Green New Deal resolution says that, um, in you know, the, the globe needs to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, and they need to get halfway there by 2030. 40 to 60% by 2030. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the resolution. That's the resolution introduced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey. That's the resolution that has been agreed to and signed on by Kamala, Booker, Warren, um, and Gillibrand. Sorry if I'm forgetting anyone else in the Senate who's running for president. But they And Bernie Sanders, of course. And so they all signed on to this. Um, And so that's what Beto's plan is. And yet, the Sunrise Movement, um, who we've talked to, put out a statement critical of Beto's plan this morning saying that we actually need to do, we need to be net zero in the United States by 2030 because we need to go faster than the rest of the world since we have more emissions, Um, which is a completely fine position to have. But it's very interesting that I didn't realize this until I saw this, that the Sunrise Movement's goal is not in line with the actual Green New Deal resolution that was introduced by AOC in Congress. Mm. Doesn't that make sense, though? Hey, look, I, it's just funny. Is, they never said anything when the new Green New Deal resolution came up. Right, but I imagine, it's, you know, look, this is, I think, the first presidential candidate to outline a specific policy plan around climate. Yeah. And so this is the first opportunity the, the Sunrise Movement has to criticize it. It would make sense to me. 
um, for them to stake out a maximal position because their goal is to try to keep Democrats further to the left. I think it's a kind of natural place for them to be. And, you know, we've talked about, I can't, I'm about to say the phrase Overton window, but whatever. Uh, they're going to move Overton window. But the, uh, <laughs> trying to make sure that, they make sure that as long, they have to stake out further left because they can feel how our politics is going to pull wherever we land to the right. Yeah. That's all. The only other thing I'll say about this is, um, I think everyone criticized the Green New Deal when it came out as like, you know, it's pie in the sky thinking, whatever, it's unrealistic. I thought that it's one of the most politically pragmatic plans from a messaging perspective because it combines here's what we need to do on climate with here's what we need to do to make sure that our economy transitions in the right way and that everyone gets something from this right that there's you know dignified work and benefits and all this kind of stuff and so and i think beto's plan leaves room for that but i hope that not only beto but all the candidates as they talk about climate don't just talk about here's what we have to do to prevent the planet from extinction but Here's what we also have the opportunity to do to make sure that as we transition to this new renewable energy economy, clean energy economy, that we can also make sure we lift up poorer communities and make sure people have good jobs with good benefits. Like, I think the economic messaging is really important. To the we've, we've, sorry, we've really, we've really adapted because I remember when we, we used to talk about climate change and it was all we talk about the carbon tax, talk about the cap and trade. We, and we lead with that. And man, you know, he does outline a massive climate proposal and it's like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to restructure the tax code and we're going to do this and we're going to get all this other shit done, but also we're going to restructure the tax code just a little bit. You're going to have to get some taxes from people. (laughs) And so I think that that's sort of a interesting change in how we're talking about it. And I think for the most part, it is a lesson learned about bad faith arguments and what you need to actually do to get something done. Okay. When we come back, we'll have my conversation with uh, former Obama pollster, Cornell Belcher. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. On the pod today, um, Obama pollster, DNC pollster, just brilliant all-around guy, Cornell Belcher joining us today. Welcome back to the welcome back to the show, Cornell. <laughs> Thanks for Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, so, thought we'd have you on now that the Democratic field is almost set, barring a few. <laughs> I was, was going to say, is it set yet? I'm not sure. Right. I think we got like two or three out there. But um, now that our old friend Joe Biden is finally in the race, it's it's starting to look like the field is set. Um, yep. How much is polling 
even useful at this stage in the primary? And what, if anything, do the public and private polls you've seen tell you about the race so far? Well, let's just, that's a really good question. And let's do a little bit of educating and filming for our, for, our, for our audience. Yes, please. There's a big difference between the public polls that you all see on a regular basis being Washington Post, uh, NBC, Wall Street Journal polling. And those polls have a lot of basic horse race numbers in it and favorability ratings, job performance ratings, et cetera, which give you a snapshot. Um, as you know, John, campaign polling is, is, is different because campaigns poll for around building strategy mm-hmm. and figuring out what's the best outlay for their resources. Uh, you know, who, who are they targeting? What uh, what demographics? What, ge- what geographic groups uh, make sense for targeting? And what are the best arguments for those candidates? So right now, I would say a lot of the public polling that's taking a, a snapshot of the horse race numbers um, are completely meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> particularly when you look at <laughs> when you look at the history, particularly the history of Democrat uh, of of the Democrat primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, look. History of the Democratic primary says that the candidate who is in the lead right now is usually not in the lead six, six or seven months from now. Mm-hmm. It is often the kiss of death to be in the lead at this point. I will, I will, I will, I will point you all to 2004 when, at this time, uh, Senator Joe Lieberman was the leading uh, candidate in all the in, in, in all in all. about that. <laughs> right, you remember Joe Lieberman? I, I, yes, I, unfortunately, uh, Joe Lieberman was leading in polling at the time, and then followed very quickly by Wesley Clark. Remember Wesley Clark? I do. There was a little Wesley Clark boomlet there for a couple weeks. <laughs> there, 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 there was before, and then, and then you had, um, uh, then you had my guy Dean uh, rise, and, and then Dean and Gephardt got into basically a murder-suicide pact in Iowa, mm-hmm. which led the way for John Kerry to come up the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and I think, I think this time around looks a lot more like 2004 than than 2016. And I'll and I'll talk about why I think that is. But so so polling of the that, that takes a look at the horse race number, and you see Joe Biden right now uh, leading in the polls. Although the Washington Post poll had him not as far ahead of, as as the field as some of the other polls did, but that is basically name identification and who voters know and they're comfortable with right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but for campaigns, campaigns are polling right now to figure out uh, what's their lane. You know, in a crowded primary field, there's going to be several lanes, and who's in my lane? Uh, you know, if you are, if you are a Beto, is is Mayor Pete in your lane? Uh, if you are Warren, is Sanders in your lane? Try to figure out who's in your lane uh, when you look at the voters who, who are likely to move to you, and what are the arguments? What are the best arguments? to make for yourself, uh, to raise your, particularly if you're the rest of the field, uh, and not Biden uh, or Sanders, to raise your name identification, get voters to know you, and get voters comfortable with, with you. And then at some point, and, and this is what people hate about politics, but, but, but John, as you know, this is part of politics. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to contrast myself with the candidate that's in my lane who's ahead of me. So, for example... Uh, Biden is going to take a lot of shots over the next couple of months, not because they they just dislike Biden, but because it's politics. 
And if Biden's ahead of you and Biden's in your lane, you're going to have to do something to contrast himself or to, or, to, or to knock his or to knock support down away from him. That's just politics 101. So a lot of the campaigns right now, that's what their polling is, is doing and trying to figure out. And that's their internal polling that we'll never see because it lays out their strategy. So tell me more about why you think this race looks more like uh, 2004 than anything else. And, and, and look, it, it's. I think it looks more like 2004 because if you look at 2004, you had again you had a very sort of crowded field of of, of candidates, some, well, some really well established established candidates. You know, um, you know, <laughs> Gephardt was a well established Democrat. Um, John Kerry, uh, Lieberman, you had a you had a lot of well established. Uh, Candidates in a, in a, in a, in a, in, a, in, a crowd, in a crowded field. I think this is more like 2000, um, and and no one was really a a, a dominant dominant uh, front runner. 2008, Hillary Clinton was a dominant front runner. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was. She was ahead uh, 20 plus points in all the polling from the field. Oh yeah. Uh, and she was just as dominant uh, a front runner in, t- in 2008 as she was in in, in 20 in, in 2016. So that's because so, when I look at uh, Vice President Biden, yes, he's a front runner, but is he as dominant of a, a front running figure uh, now as, as Hillary Clinton was in 2008? No, I, I no, he, he wasn't. I think it, so. I think you have a a more crowded, bunched up field, and when you look at the most of the primary polling right now, and again, it's all name identification. But when you look at most of the primary polling right now, and, and Washington Post headlined this the other day, was, the field is rather, rather wide open. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, Vice President Biden has has advantage, but there are a lot of voters out there shopping around and looking uh, for candidates. And just from my qualitative, I've been doing some qualitative in some of the early states. Mm-hmm. Uh, voters know and they like. Uh, Vice President Biden, I, like like myself, I know it. I like Vice President Biden, but to say that they are that they're locked in on Vice President Biden now, they're they're not. They're 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 shopping around, and I think he and his campaign know that they're going to have to work very hard to to hold on to a lead and expand and and sort of and break and break away from the pack. Yeah. So let's talk about the voters a little bit. Uh, and you said you've been doing some qualitative research, uh, which is f- known as focus groups also. Um, what what are the top qualities that Democratic voters are looking for in a nominee this time around? Is it experience? Is it someone new or different? Is it competence, inspiration? What what are the different qualities that keep coming up when you talk to people? Uh, you, you know, that's, that's, that's a really good question. And, and it, there's no silver bullet. And this gets us back to the conversation about lanes. Mm-hmm. So there are certainly... Uh, a, a a segment of the Democratic electorate that is that is that's just straight up. We want whoever whoever can beat Trump will take will take him or her. Um, and it is just who's who's best position. Who do we think can absolutely uh, beat Trump? Uh, and then there is and then there's a segment out there who's really looking for uh, candidates who who are going to push. A, a a more progressive agenda, uh, and is going to really sort of push the boundaries uh, of 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 things. And there's a segment out there that's looking that's just looking for change. What I think is interesting is there's always 
an element uh, of uh, or a segment of the electorate, uh, especially in a Democrat primary, who who will be who will be driving for, and looking for the change-oriented candidate. You know, and quite frankly, I think you still let Republican uh, primary as well. We may not, you know, I think Trump's a, a, an incredible, unethical, and corrupt person, but he was in he was to a certain extent the anti-establishment change candidate for the Republicans, just the way Barack Obama was the anti-establishment change candidate in 2008. And I think the candidate who can own that anti-establishment change lane and can dominate that lane, that candidate has a pretty good chance of 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 still be of of, of still be one of the few candidates standing um, in six or seven months. Uh, I think there's a lane that's that's clearly the establishment, safe lane, uh, experience lane, and I think um, I think I think Vice President Biden has a clear advantage to owning that lane. Although I think there there's some candidates going to try to chip away at him in that lane, but I but I think he's clearly going to own that lane. For me, John, the question is, and this was sort of like to me in 2008, who's going to be the candidate who where where the, the voters who are who and there's always a quad you know a cohort of them who are change oriented anti-establishment shake things up uh, and who can dominate that and I think it, frankly I think we saw that in 2016 with with Sanders and and look Sanders I think did really well in the last Democratic primary and was it on the base and this is the question I I think that's hanging out there was so much of that surge for Sanders, was that really about Sanders and, 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 and sort of who he was, or was that that anti-establishment change-oriented voter that, that, you know, he was a safe place for them, he was a safe place for them to land, he was the only place for them to land um, and, uh, and, and be against the establishment and be anti-Hillary be anti Clinton. Yeah, and I imagine... People like uh, candidates like Elizabeth Warren and and potentially, I guess, Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, a whole bunch of others are, are probably trying to compete in that lane in some ways. Yeah. I guess trying to be a, a more of a change candidate. Is that does that seem right? I think that seems right, but 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 each candidate has but each candidate has to run their own race because because there's not credibility, right? Um, you know who who can who can most credibly hold that that change and that that uh, shake things up uh, lane uh, and it's how they unfold their it's how they unfold their stories uh, and and show that you know it one of the things that I think was brilliant about the 2008 Obama campaign was how Obama made Hillary's experience a negative yeah um, and you'll remember how he talked about about her vote on the war. So to a certain extent, he went after what was her what was her a large part of her predicate was his experience and his readiness uh, and know how to get the job done. You know, he undermined that by going after by going after the experience, but he was also credible at it. Um, which candidate can credibly hold uh, that change-oriented lane, anti-establishment lane? And one of the other things that I'm finding in focus groups is. Frankly, a candidate who has a really good story mm. that is that doesn't sound like uh, Pat uh, 
that candidate has a pretty good chance of breaking through. And when you look at Mayor Pete right now, yeah. Mayor Pete has a great story, John. Yeah. And I think people are people resonate toward good stories. Uh, now, can he hold that and build it? I don't know. But if you look at the field of candidates right now and the one who's telling the best story about sort of who he is, where he's come from, and, and how he got to this place right now, to me, without question, it is it, it's it's Mayor Pete. Now, I'm also going to be controversial. I'm 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 going to be <laughs> I'm going to push back a, a lot of a little bit on what I think is is progressive uh, conventional think, or not even progressive conventional think. I think it's sort of conventional political think. Okay, and say this: uh, Are policy positions important? Yes, they're absolutely important. Do people are people making their decisions about who to vote for in a linear, rational, uh, well thought out uh, way around who's closest to them on a whole set of policy positions? History would tell us that that that's just not true. Although we want to believe it's true, look, if voters were deciding uh, in a linear policy way, um, you know, Al Gore would have would be president. Right. Uh, you know, certainly Hillary would have would have, would have beat Trump by by double digits. Right. Um, but there's also this this that likability and charisma thing. You know, I had a lot of policy issues with George Bush, but in the end, there was something about George Bush that made people want to have a beer with him. And you cannot underestimate how important that is uh, for a politician, for someone running running for office, is that people gravitate towards you because they like you and they trust you yeah no look i i totally get that too and i i always have this i mean i I think i think elizabeth warren for example because she's the candidate that everyone says you know every every day there's a new bold ambitious plan from elizabeth warren she has a plan (laughs) for that it now gets an applause line she's got t-shirts it's great but i would say that i find elizabeth warren compelling as a candidate not just because she has a bunch of policies because I agree with you since I've been in politics for a long time and seen this, the policies that you lay out are not what gets you elected. And when Elizabeth Warren talks to people, what she's constantly doing is talking about her story, her background, how her policies fits in with her background. So she seems to get that it's not just about plans, (laughs) that it's about your story, (laughs) even though I feel like a lot of the coverage of it is like, well, the candidates who have a lot of plans aren't getting ahead in the polls. Like, why is that? But that's also how they cover, you know, that's how also how if you look at at the coverage, and I'm guilty of this because I've been on television talking about, you know, how how great, she, you know, her policies, she is from laying, laying out policies, but how many of those voters really know her backstory? Right. How many of those voters really know, you know, that, that the rationale for why she's landed on this set of policies? You know, she's right now, she's looked at it as, as certainly... You can with 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 the most policies out there, and, and and people like those policies, but they don't really know Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Um. So you've got a few of the leading candidates: uh, Biden, Bernie to some extent, Buttigieg to some extent, a couple others. Um, making a case that the fastest way to win 270 electoral votes is to rebuild the blue wall in the Midwest, win back some of those Obama-Trump voters who left the party in 2016. Um, You and I have talked in the past about 
you know, an, another way to think about building a coalition is to mobilize those. I think it's like four million Obama voters <laughs> who sat yes. out, who sat out in 2016. <laughs> how, how do you see sort of the path to 270? I mean, you know, we talk a lot about like it's a false choice. Obviously, you can do both. But as you assemble coalitions and think about messaging and candidates and all that, how, how do you see the coalition building? John, can you can 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 we curse on your on your podcast? We sure can. We sure can. Uh, that bullshit is making my head want to explode. <laughs> right. All right. Perfect. It is un it is unfucking believable to me <laughs> that you know who, who was the last you know I, I'll wait on this. When was the last time, other than Barack Obama, a Democrat has won back to back majorities? Right. Uh, yeah. Now, FDR. FDR. I think that's right. Right. Yeah. right. That, that's a long, long time ago. Heck, you. I mean, you got to go a long way in our history to look at a Republican who's won back-to-back majorities. Right. Barack Obama won back-to-back majorities. You know, so the ideal that that uh, that we can't rebuild and expand that that coalition of Obama voters, as opposed to us wasting, waste is the wrong word. So opposed to us spending such a disproportionate amount of time and effort and resources chasing voters who who support Donald Trump. Yeah, it's mind-boggling to me, and the only way—and I'm sorry, John—the only way I understand it is I have to understand that the that a lot of the the, the cabal that runs the the party and and the party organizations, be it the DTRIP, the DSCC, um, you know, they are uh, uh, old white guys yeah. who 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 are disconnected. From this, from this, from this broader understanding. Look, and and, they, and and I understand the romanticism that we have about about non-college white voters or the, or sort of you know these working class white voters. And should we compete uh, for working class white voters? Absolutely, we should compete for working class white voters. And if you ask, you know, it, 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 who's Nancy Pelosi fighting for? When Nancy Pelosi goes to 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 the you know the floor of, of the House, who's she fighting for? She's fighting for working class voters. So. So, so yes, we should we should we should champion working class issues, but but from a campaign standpoint, look, there are when you look at the Washington Post poll that just came out, um, uh, was it nearly sixty percent of non college white voters approve of Donald Trump? Right. Um, on the flip side, so 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 how in 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 approval from twenty eighteen and from historically has lined up fairly closely with 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 the vote. So if you have 60 or 60 plus percent of 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 what they're defining as working class white voters still today approving and for Trump, uh, I would argue that perhaps perhaps you shouldn't put so much of your resources and time chasing those voters as opposed to, for example, when you have millennials who on the flip side are disapproving of Donald Trump by, by better than 60%, or you have college white voters uh, who disapprove of Donald Trump by 58%. Yeah. Uh, so it's this argument that, that, no, I'm not saying that we shouldn't target and we shouldn't try to work win working class or you know, these working class white voters, these non-college white voters. Absolutely we should. But should, all, but should so much of our time and resources be spent Chasing a a, a a a group that that that's approving of Donald Trump, and by the way, Donald Trump didn't win a majority in Michigan. Yeah, he didn't win a majority in Pennsylvania. He didn't win a majority in Wisconsin. And if you look at what Donald Trump's um, winning margin, you know, 
winning percentage was in, in, in those in those in those industrial uh, blue wall states, they would have been losing percentages to, to, to Barack Obama. And this myth that there was all these oh these these Obama uh, Trump voters, I think is I, I I fail to see from a number standpoint um, something that really backs up that there was this 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 huge swath of Obama Trump voters. Were there Obama Trump voters? Absolutely, but there were also uh, Romney Hillary voters. And if and if Trump had won over so many Obama voters. He certainly would have done a lot better than Mitt Romney did in Florida. He certainly would have done, you know, several points better, perhaps even reaching a majority of the vote uh, in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. But he didn't. Right. Right. So, so what? What is it? A what it is? Go, what is going on with our party when when we have some four million to your point Obama voters who just flat out sat out the last election because they. They rejected the binary choice of a lesser of two evils. That that all of a sudden, wouldn't from a campaign standpoint, wouldn't that be lower hanging fruit? And if you look at the protest vote, and you and I have talked about this before, those voters who voted third party uh, in twenty in in in, in twenty sixteen, who were once upon a time Obama voters, but they again rejected the binary choice of of lesser two evils, rejected. The ideal of Hillary Clinton, and by the way, we we now know that the Russians were helping drive some of that negative towards towards Hillary Clinton. Aren't isn't that lower hanging fruit to 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 winning back a majority than going after a Trump voter? Yeah, I mean, have have you talked to some of those voters? Like, what are those voters looking for in a candidate? What messages appeal to those voters? Like, if if that's sort of maybe the key to reassembling a coalition or building an even broader coalition, how do how do we reach out and get those voters? Well, one of the things is, and again, it really isn't rocket science. Um, if you look at 2000, how did, and you remember this, David, David, David Pluff said in 2008, we're not going to be sitting around on election night waiting for the results of one state to come in to determine whether or not we're, we're president. Right. It is about expanding, expanding, expanding the, uh, the electorate, expanding the playing field. And putting more states in, putting more states in play. What I fear is that Democrats are going to again put all of our eggs in, in, in one or two baskets. So on election night, we're going to be sitting around waiting for Ohio and Florida to come in to determine the, the to determine the election. And I think that's an absolute losing strategy. I think that strategy benefits Republicans. You know, as opposed to look, Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. <laughs> Stacey Abrams lost Georgia by. By by a hair, and even in 2012, um, uh, Seamus did allow us to at least poll in Georgia. Uh, Seamus being a, uh, one of the uh, uh, Obama campaign folks uh, allows. So we so I she did I did polling in Georgia to look at what Georgia looked like, and even back then, you know Obama was only running behind Romney by a couple points in Georgia, and the idea was you know Georgia's state that's coming online. Yeah. North Carolina is a state. North Carolina is, is North Carolina the next Virginia? Um, so you know, is Arizona the? Is, is you know, absolutely should we be playing and and putting them on the defensive in, in, in Arizona? Yes, and part of it is, and it's an old old dean thing. You know, part half of it is showing up. Uh, and going into two thousand eight, we heard a lot of conversations about well, well, 
well, young people don't vote. Well, Obama knew he couldn't win without young people voting. So guess what we did? We put our resources and time and effort in reaching young people and talking to young people and engaging young people in a conversation of where where they were in a way that no other campaign has. So if I look at what's happening right now in the party, will we make the same investments at going after millennials? Millennials are no longer a secondary, you know, consideration of vote. They are they are potentially a larger swath of voters than, than baby boomers. Are we going to put the time and resources in, in chasing and in, in chasing millennials? And I think we need. And by the way, if if you're putting that time and resources in millennials, millennials are also the most diverse uh, generation of Americans in American history. So it also means you 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 also have to make investments in Latino and African American and Asian American communities in a, in a in a very different way than I think the party has in the past. So if and that's how you expand the electorate. That's how you build upon the Obama legacy, which I think. And of course, I'm biased, and I think you're a little biased too, John. True. But I think that's the way you win back a majority if you're a Democrat. Yeah, no, I I, I, I agree. Um, Cornell, thank you so much for joining us. I could I could talk about this stuff all day. Uh, you, uh, <laughs> so you'll, <could> I. you'll, <laughs> well, uh, you'll have to come back again uh, as this uh, crazy primary unfolds. We'd love to have you back on. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Cornell Belcher for joining us today, um, and we'll uh, we'll see you on Thursday. Uh, any any closing thoughts on uh, Game of Thrones? Spoilers, spoilers! If you haven't seen it, just turn the fucking podcast off. Look, I think um, the bottom line is we saw we saw one guy yell at a dragon, and then we saw a woman come in with the policies we needed. That's all I'm going to say. You know. That ruined it for me. I have nothing else to say. <laughs> <laughs> Immediate, immediately taken it to politics. Pundit um, over here. Uh, I was excited. I, I was. It was so tense. I couldn't calm down for like hours afterwards. It was tense. I also look. No shade to our friends at HBO, but man, when you're watching it and it's light out, it is really hard to see. That was my one critique. Uh, it was hard to see. I was so, so dark. And it's been like that before in battle scenes. Yes. I feel as though most it's always it's always a game. Fight of during thing. the day. I feel as though <laughs> I, I like have, the fire. The fire made me feel. I was like, oh, I can see now. There's fire. I feel as though I have also been pre- preparing for this battle for some time because I I pulled down two blackout shades. I adjusted the contrast on my magnificent television, and I sat back and I thought, I'm watching it the right we, way. We we hung a blanket up over the uh, over the window <laughs> to, to reduce the glare. Uh, I will say, for t- some people complain about this episode, one thing to remember. Some of the most crushing deaths in Game of Thrones have come not during the battles, but at unexpected moments. It's good to hear you do this, because is this what it sounds like when we reassure people about politics? Yeah, that's Probably. exactly what it sounds like. I did not like it. The one thing I didn't <laughs> like, uh, I love. I really enjoyed the episode. I didn't like seeing the Night King up close, like smirking, becoming a full person with a personality. Uh, keep him far away. Keep that steely, you know, grimace. That's another, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm there. I'm hoping we still get some more backstory on the Night yes, King because it would be it would be criminal if they just ended it there and you didn't hear anything I else just, about him. <laughs> I don't know. I just I'm very frustrated by uh, everybody dies except the six people you care about. You know, it's like we, there was one shot where you're panning across and it was Three like episodes left. I, I know, but like we had two episodes of build up waiting for these people to go head to head, and then you kind of pan across and it's like. Almost out, but still fighting is Brienne and Jamie and yeah. Podrick and Gendry, and it's like, well, if the, what are a lot the of odds? Improbable survivals, and there's a lot. There's something like they've been doing where it's basically, you know, 
the, the, the zombies get on top of somebody you love, but don't worry, right behind them is somebody else you love, and they're going to get rid of those zombies, and they're going to keep on fighting. And then, and then, <laughs> right when everybody is fully fucked, <laughs> like, we have fought, they're exhausted, they've been doing basically two hours of heavy lifting and cardio, and then... Everyone, then all of a sudden the Night King makes that catty little smirk and he's like, wake up everybody, uh-huh. you're fucked yeah. again. And then they're still going to fight some more and they're still okay. I got some, I got some, the odds were too great. Deck was stacked too hard against them. It was a little World War Z-ish. And also, I have no idea what the dragon count is currently. <laughs> Someone's got to figure it like, I think we still got two live dragons because in the preview for next episode, you saw the two, there were two dragons okay. in the sky. So I, I know I weren't. shouldn't have to rely on oh, the preview. And also, Ghost. Dire Wolf, mm-hmm. John's Dire Wolf. I've been wondering where they ran off. Never see him again. Like, did he die? What? No. In the in the preview for the next episode, you also see him uh, standing in the back there. So ghost, and ghost. Also, we got a ghost. We got two dragons. Also, Melisandre disappears for years. She comes back. She's a human fucking Zippo. I knew what she'd the? be. I knew she'd be useful. <laughs> <laughs> Just like like Daenerys flies away. They clearly had a plan, and the plan was Daenerys at a key moment. All right, we're gonna for some reason kill all the Dothraki at once right before we start. Not really clear why. Yeah. But once they're dead, there's gonna be a key moment where we need you to use your dragon to set this shit on fire, and then just sort of misses her cue. You know? Well, they, they, I think the Night King had some power to he like was stop with the them weather. from breathing fire. That yeah, it was the weather. Yeah, he brought in a storm. There was that like was a Captain winter. Winter 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 so fucking she got grounded at Atlanta. That's <laughs> <laughs> so we had a fucking weather delay. I think it was Chicago, but yes. So it's <laughs> she got, got stuck O'Hare. at O'Hare. <laughs> How about Theon just charging the Night King? Yeah, I, I mean, wasn't. I, I'm like, you know what? That's the least surprising thing that happened in the episode. Imagine if Theon was the one who killed the Night King. <laughs> I will say, I, uh, my friend Dan said this, uh, which I thought was really funny, which is that uh, Jorah Mormont uh, got friend zoned to death. <laughs> <laughs> his whole life in the friend zone. <laughs> got just like her fi- his fi- her final his final words are just like, mm, and she's like, I'm just gonna kiss you on the cheek. I re- the only surprise I th- I had was I thought I was very worried that Arya might die and boy did that not happen. <laughs> Jamie I knew they, they could not have killed Jamie because Jamie needs another scene with Cersei. You know like I no matter what he was fighting I was like they're not killing him. He's got to see Cersei one more time. All right. <laughs> we just had to get that out. I'm sure some of you will still complain even though we told you to turn it off. Bye everyone. Bye. <laughs>host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.